Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Welcome out, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and this week we get the chance to hear from Dr. Jay Matenga. Now, this is an amazing conversation because we talk about so many different topics, in particular focusing on identity, spirituality, whakapapa, and kapapa Māori. I advise you just to sit back and absorb some of the content because what he had to say was really fascinating, and his own personal journey of discovering who he is and his identity is something that may actually resonate with some of you as well. If you enjoy this, then why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog, because there's more than 260 of those, and you can find out more about it in the show notes or at the website, theseeds.nz. And if you enjoy this interview, why not consider sharing it with a friend? Now let's get straight into this interview with Jay. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Jay Matenga to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Kia ora, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you here because I heard you give another podcast Mm -hmm. and I reached out after that because I was really interested in some of the concepts that you were talking about, in particular, thinking about Te Ao Māori and the environment, and uh, but just also your life story. I could tell there was more to it than what I'd heard. So um, what I do with Seeds is we talk about lots of topics, but I love to go back in time and find out about people's history and their backgrounds. So in your case, I would actually love to hear a little bit about your childhood, uh-huh. and then we'll go from there. But I'd also like to invite you to give your pepeha as well. Kia ora, and kia ora tātou. Uh, ko takitimu uh, tō ko waka, uh, ko tu, tuhirangi tō ko maonga, ko rumahanga uh, tō ko awa, uh, ko onoki uh, tō ko rotou, uh, ko ngāti kuhunganu uh, ki wararapa. Rawa ko kaitahu, uh, ko ngati poro o ko iwi, uh, ko kaitahu ki te rapaki. Uh, um, ko ngati uh, rakai whakairi toko hapu, ko kohunui uh, toko marae. Uh, ko jema tanga uh, toko ingoa, so uh, ko jema tanga ahau. Uh, I am jema tanga, I've just described... S- some of my um, connections to the land, which pretty much is um, the east coast of, of the North Island and all of the South Island. Because if we, <laughs> if we, if we whakapapa to Kaitahu, then, you know, you can claim the whole lot. But it's actually um, my great-great-grandmother married into the Kahunganu uh, line from Rapaki, just mm. out at, um, here in Otatahi. So... Um, that I discovered when I was 42. Right. So I can recite my pipi house stuntingly, but not having grown up in uh, te ao Māori, in the Māori environment, tikanga Māori, but having grown up with this very deep, innate sense of kaupapa Māori, which didn't make sense to me for the longest time. Mm. Um, and so I'm part of the the... Really, I think we can call it a, a Māori resurgence of, of discovery of identity from those of us who our parents had gone the way of the pākehā mm. uh, because that was the way of success. And their parents had been punished for speaking the reo at school, etc. I mean, um, we'll come loop back as we do in these big 
koru circles when we tell our stories. But um, sitting with my dad when I first met him at the age of 42, um, and I inter- interviewed him as part of my doctoral work, I mean, he was just wept and wept at, as he was re- recalling with regret how little he knew of his own. Um, he knew uh, all of us whakapapa. He knew he was... He was the go-to guy for Whakapapa, but he didn't have the reo. He didn't grow up in tikanga. He felt awkward in the marae, um, and he felt ashamed of being called uh, matua or even komatua. Mm. Um, when in, in his environment, he, he grew comfortable with it eventually as he got older, but um, it always felt odd to him. So a lot of regret from from him, and then um, I was blessed to receive that heritage mm. um, very warmly when we connected. Well, I'd love to find out about that because that's that's amazing as part of your story, you know, to be age forty two and then be on a journey of discovery, really, and mm. and finding out new things. Before we do that, do you mind winding back and telling us about, like, even when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was that like? Sure. I can go back further. It was 1966 in Porirua, <laughs> <laughs> Cannons Creek, Porirua. Um, my my grandfather was the my alcoholic grandfather, Pakia, mm-hmm. my mother's father, was the cook at the Porirua Tavern. In the late 60s, Porirua was emerging as this blended space of a lot of welfare, a lot of wharfies, mm. a lot of gangs start, starting to emerge there. And um, and my grandfather and my biological father, who was the manager of the Porirua Tavern, would have after-hour sessions. And they would get um, inebriated and my my grandfather's house, my mother's house, was closer to the pub, and so they would stumble home to my uh, grandparents' house, and that's where my father got to know my mother. And uh, I can say this now: he's passed away, and that's all water under the bridge. But they conducted a rather illicit affair, mm. uh, of which I was conceived uh, from that. And um, there is a connection on my biological father's then wife's side to the mongrel mob in Cannons Creek, uh, such that my mother's family were fearful that if word got out, there'd be repercussions Hmm. negatively. My mum was the third eldest of nine, and so there was this big family under one roof in a state house in Cannons Creek and um, trying to make life work. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, they, can, my grandmother and mother, sort of conspired to uh, to keep it a secret. So they said that to tell my father that I was the byproduct of another relationship my mother had at work, and um, f- for him to best to go back to his family, which hmm. he did. Hmm. And uh, I was brought up um, for the first three years, effectively fungied. Um, foster care uh, fostered to my grandmother and uh, and then my mother married uh, and then I was the the family narrative is I was ripped out of my grandmother's care to live with my mother and stepfather um, part of that narrative and the trauma of that time for all of us was that my grandmother had lost a baby 
when I was born and I was the surrogate, if you will. Right. So it was um, it was very hard for her. And my stepfather wasn't the nicest of people. Hmm. So I grew up in a, in a fully Pākehā family in the, with a very overt, racist Pākehā stepfather who was uh, violent and, and verbally abusive, never mm. hit us, um, thankfully. But it was a very traumatic growing up environment for me and eventually my uh, half-sister. Mm. And did you, like, that's a lot of circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> did you grow up as a child knowing some of these things, or is it later on in life that yeah. you found out about what was going on, and, you know, like your grandmother, for example, and, and what she had been going through, and then you were born, and, yeah, it, I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not consciously. Uh, so I started life in Cannons Creek and uh, went to a couple of primary schools there um, before... Uh, mum and my stepfather moved to the Wairarapa mm. and settled in Martinborough. And if anybody here listening knows the uh, the tribal areas, um, you'll realise that I've I have now moved back into my Tūranga Waiwai. So where my father grew up, mm. I moved back into that area unknowingly. Mm. And uh, I spent most of my primary school and all of my secondary school years in the South Wairarapa. Um, and that was something of a and a, a much more positive environment outside of uh, Cannons Creek, but obviously still with my same parents. And my, so my stepfather was still very volatile. And at one point, when I was probably nine years old, I think um, he he was punching holes in the jib and going um, doing one of his violent rampages. And my mother looked at me. I don't know what precipitated it. And she said, oh, don't even listen to him, son. He's not even, he's not your real father. <laughs> and as a kid, it's... Um, so you hadn't known up until that point? No, it was just not conscious. But yeah. there was always something different. Sure. I, I remember when I was six, um, my f- stepfather said, why don't you guys, you never play outside. And I said to him, oh, why is my skin so brown then if I'm never out in the sun? <laughs> I remember that as clear as day. Yeah, after the fact, realizing, yeah. oh, there's that, that aspect. Not that I'm particularly brown normally, but um, it turned up fairly fast. So by the time it got to about nine, um, that was a, quite a release for me. It was a, mm. um, I didn't have, to, I didn't feel the shame of his condemnation nearly as acutely as I was because it was, mm. oh, it's not my real father. I don't have to take that on myself. Mm. It's amazing what kids can think at that stage. And so um, that from that point on, I knew that my father was a Martinger. I knew his name. Um, didn't really know where he, he was from. Mm. Um, I didn't know that I, over the back fence I was playing with my cousins Mm. On that side of the fa- on the my Maori side of the family, and that the whole town I was virtually related to, right? <laughs> that I moved into as a stranger. Wow! Until years later, um, so uh, yes. Yeah, so your so father, from that point, your your birth father on that side had siblings and and cousins, and and so 
there's a huge family Massive. that you're literally moving right back to where they're from yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you're walking by them in the street and yeah. they didn't know that connection. Yeah. yeah. No. And um, I remember sitting on my porch step. I, I enjoy um, doing car- carving. And I remember sitting with a piece of sunlight soap and a, and a kitchen knife just carving stuff. Mm-hmm. Maori forms that were some, somehow drawn to. And um, these these things, and a, a sense of intuitiveness towards what we now know, now call kaupapa Māori. Hmm. Um, being involved in Māori stuff at school and just having this draw. And then finding out that my biological father was Māori um, was just this best thing ever for me <laughs> to discover. And I went to primary school hmm. to my cousins, right, who I didn't know they were my cousins. And... Um, rocked up to a group of them and said um, something like, oh, hey, I'm one of you fellas, I'm, I'm a Māori. And the response was, nah, well, if you are, prove it then, fight us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to fight you. Why do I have to do that to prove it? Uh, but that was all around this sort of time was, um, mm. was that. So your mother, when she told you when you were nine, she was quite open as well about your, you know, your father is this person. Yeah, like, but she she entrusted she entrusted that to me. She said, "Don't tell your your stepfather." Right. Um, so it was kind of like this family secret. And then from then on, I was asking all my aunties and uncles who knew my dad, mm-hmm. what was he like? Where was he from? And they could only give me piecemeal. My grandmother would would tell me. I said, "Oh." Was my dad a Maori? And my grandmother says, "Oh yeah, he used to tell us." And she would put her thumbnail against the last notch on her pinky finger, mm-hmm. and she would say, "Oh, he used to tell us, oh, I'm that much Maori." And I thought, "Oh, oh it's just a little bit then, but that's okay." Um, but it wasn't until all those years later I sit down and he's giving me my heritage, my whakapapa, and he's talking about his mother who was. Uh, Prussian English mm. and then his father and then he talked about his father's mother and father and their mothers and father and I said wait 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 I said how much Maori are you he goes oh I used to tell your grandmother and he said for word for word <laughs> the pinky finger thing he <laughs> says but no my father there's no Parker in my family beyond my father uh. and I just sat back in my chair just stunned I thought you know, blood quantums aren't the, the thing, but the significance of knowing this, there was no Pākehā influence from my grandfather mm. beyond. It was quite a revolution to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, normally in interviews, what I do is I sort of trace through, like, what was your high school like? What did you do mm. next? We might come back to that. But while we're talking about this, I'm really interested in just to continue the, the conversation. How did you reach out to your father? Like... You know, at what point did you think, okay, now's the right time? And just talk us through that. Because that, you know, between age nine and 42, that's a significant amount of time. So so what was going on there? Yeah. Well, um, around the age of 16, one of the most significant things happened in my life was um, becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So, And this little... Um, fellowship in, in a, they met in a school building as a result of 
some high school friends and Mm -hmm. it's a convoluted story but i another significant aspect i found out later was i was baptized in my tribal river in my awa Ah. and um that has since gained extra significance and so my journey into that and then into christian ministry through through theology and um into a global uh, space, global sphere. I was involved in um, an international organization and uh, part of the international leadership team, which consisted of people from other cultures as well, from Latinos, uh, Asians and Africans. And it was the Africans, particularly Ghanaians, and, and a Ghanaian and a Zambian mentor of mine who sat me down one day and they said, there's something different about you that we don't see in all of these other Europeans. Hmm. They said, you have, a, you have a Western face, but you have an African heart. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what, what is, why do you see the world the way we see it? And you don't see, these others don't see it. Hmm. And so that got me thinking. And they said, you need to find out why this is. Hmm. And I knew it was something to do with my own, my my father's heritage. So they said, you you go because you understand the world the way we understand it and you can articulate it to all of these other Westerners. So you're going to be our spokesperson and, um, and, and um, translate what we're trying to say from the heart to the way that they will hear it with their ears. Hmm. And so I found myself in this bridging space um, because of this very innate, intuitive understanding of Kopa Māori and, and the world through a, a Māori ngāko, you know, the, the gut-level faith mm. intuition. So um, so then I, I came back, and I was looking to start a doctorate, and this is how um, superficial I am. I thought, oh, maybe I will get some iwi funding if I can trace my <laughs> my um, papa, and then I could apply for some, some of that to do doctoral work in... Um, Initially was talking with Massey about that. Um, that didn't transpire. But the um, that prompted me to go over the line. And I went on the internet. I, I'd often looked at phone books to see if I could track his name, uh, Barry Martinger. And in um, the internet, this Papa forum had started up hmm. on the Martinger uh, hapu. And so I just wrote on there, well, does anybody know the whereabouts of Barry Martinga? He was in Porirua around the 60s, 70s. I'd be interested to just know some of the whakapapa. And you know, I had an anonymous name. And two weeks later, he says, oh, well, I'm Barry Martinga. And I was in Porirua around this time. Wow. Uh, and this is around 2010. Mm-hmm. And... I said, oh, here's my email address. I'd love to have a chat more. He said, oh, this is my father and my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the email, I introduced myself, and he says, oh, if you're the J, I know you. you I think I know your mother and father. <laughs> and I just wrote back. I don't know what I was thinking. I said, well, according to my mother, you are my father. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. He, he wrote back, here's my phone number. Give me a call. <laughs> so he was living in Fakatani. At the time. So we um, we got in touch by phone. I sent him a photo of myself. He sent his Facebook profile, um, friend request, and I was able to see my sister and her um, children. 
And the, the, the familial uh, similarity was astonishing. Right. And I just knew, wow, oh, there's no question about this. And then uh, a few weeks later, I went and spent the weekend with him when I just got this download and we were comparing notes. We had met once before. Hmm. Martinborough twice a year has a fair, the Martinborough Fair, and the small township of 12, 1400 blows out to 20,000, even more now with all the vineyards. This was prior to that. Hmm. Um, and he used to do leather craft work and um, sell, sell his leather work at the fair, and I went and bought a, a buckle uh, off of him. Wow. And uh, my mum was there, and there was this strange interaction. And I remember walking away from buying this buckle at a super discount family and friends rate, and said to my mum, was that my real dad? And she said, yes. Wow. I went, oh, and just carried on with life. And what age would you have been at that point? Uh, I was at high school doing leather work myself, so um, huh. <laughs> 14 probably. Yeah. Fascinating story. <laughs> I, one bit I'd love to, if you can explain for the listeners, you've, you've mm. referred to Kaupapa Māori right. before. Yeah. Can you just explain what you're talking about? Because it sounds like, I mean, it's a fascinating case study of nature and nurture, right? Because um, what is it that mm. weighs in? Can you just talk to us about what that is? Yeah, then? in the simplest terms, uh, uh, Kaupapa Māori is the Māori philosophy or the, the Māori concepts of life if you will mm-hmm. um and it's just it's it's, it's sort of an academic catch-all for everything that you understand there's the maori world which is tao maori and the the whole thing together tikanga maori is the way of doing things mm-hmm. the customs of maori and kopapa maori would be the thought processes the the values the the connectedness um the, the things you hold precious mm. um, and the way that you interact with your world really mm. and the principles principles philosophies values all of that mm. would be kaupapa mm. uh, it's more or less the way of doing things tikanga is what you do and, and the more legalistic orientation mm. Uh, so sitting in with this innate sense of this thing and you're quite right I, nobody can convince me through my experience, that nurture wins over nature. Nurture will affect nature and will shape it to a degree, but there is a genetic inheritance that that is a, a spiritual thing. I think we grossly underestimate in a Western fr- Enlightenment framework of mm-hmm. the significance of the genetic code being carried down. Like I've completely independently found myself drawn to spiritual things and talking spiritual and asking spiritual questions and longing to understand how the unseen world works. And that led me to Christianity and finding a fulfillment in that. And then that led me into deep dive into understanding uh, theological questions, metaphysics, all of that, how different cultures view and interact religiously, um, only to discover, speaking with Dad, that my, I mean, he's a Mormon bishop. So he had, after uh, him and Mum broke up, long story short, he goes and starts a whole um, ward of, of uh, Mormon churches in, in um, Purirua, and then very quickly becomes um, awarded the title of bishop 
the responsibility of that and did, does that for a period of his life. Mm. And then later, when we buried him just a few weeks ago, uh, it was a Mormon funeral that I was able to participate in and speak at and just celebrate his life together with them. Um, and his father was a Mormon elder. His grandfather was the first uh, Mormon, I should actually say Latter-day Saint, because that's, mm. that's the way we're supposed to be um, phrasing it these days, but way back as one of the first converts from the Mormon missionaries, and mm. it's, and he was a tohonga. And so you've, you've then got the, the Maori spirituality line, but all through that thread there's this, this golden thread of priestliness, if you will, that led me into a position I'm in now, that I look back and, and say, you know, all theological debates aside, there's a genetic inheritance that I'm living out mm. that I had no comprehension of. They didn't shape it in any way as I was growing up. Mm. Yeah, but it certainly influenced, I can make sense of it now, but um, I had no idea of where that influence was coming yeah, from. Yeah, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I think from a Western conception, it's very individual focused. Mm. It's... I achieved this, I did this, I built this up. Whereas I think what you're identifying is often in, in different indigenous ways of thinking and ways of being, there's this sense of the whakapapa, the tracing yes. back into time, into history, and that you are the culmination of everything that's come before, the people who've come before. Yeah. And I think in Western culture, it's there's not that same connection, is there, back to... Yeah. What, what did your father do? What did your grandfather do? And, you know, the, the pepeha or the introduction often will say, who are your parents? Yeah. And, you know, and it, it grounds the person yeah. today in where they've come from. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can trace my lineage now on paper and not by rote back 27 generations to Kahungani. Um, that's that was the gift that I was given, mm. and um, the pride in that, and the sense of of that what we might call a cloud of witnesses standing with us as we go through our life, mm. the the visceral sense of ancestors around um, and present with you, and, and with all of your siblings, cousins, etc. We all share similar ancestry. Mm. That that. That weaves together a, a life um, uh, inter integration that is um, is really difficult to rip mm. to rip open, and uh, it's a precious thing. So, and from a Western point of view, the Enlightenment has tried to make the individual autonomous, mm -hmm. but it, it, from a, an indigenous perspective, autonomy is an illusion. Yeah. And genetics is proving it, interpersonal neurobiology is proving it. We're all interconnected, influencing each other mm. as persons. There is no autonomy. It's just not mm. possible. What I've realized as I've gotten older is how much of myself and my life is an echo of my own parents. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of work in sort of social enterprise, not-for-profits, and, and, you know, that, that side of life. Yeah. And when I look back, my parents were some of the first volunteers to go through John F. Kennedy's um, Peace Corps program. Oh, right. yeah. So this is 1960s. Uh -huh. They went to Chile 
and they spent time there working in cooperatives, helping people. And, and I just realized more and more that who I am is such a reflection of them. And I, I think you'll probably agree that Fakatoki looking at um, walking into the future, looking backwards, yeah. Yeah. you know, that conception that it's not all about us. It's not all, all about us braving the, the, the way forward, you know, as an individual. It's actually looking backwards as we go, go forwards. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, you know, f- particularly my situation that I didn't grow up in that environment to be influenced by um, my, particularly my father. Um, although I was heavily influenced also by my mother and her attitude to life and her commitment to the welfare of others. Mm. Um, the the innate senses of who you are, I feel for people who can't access that, they can't understand that, they have to sort of take it at face value that who they are was somehow influenced. Mm. But it, that happens negatively as well as positively, as mm. um, some research has shown uh, that um, even trauma can be passed down through a generational line, which mm. is a, an interesting um, study. Mm. But from the positive, to be, I think, it, as we enter into what Charles Taylor calls, uh, this is an age of authenticity, this whole identity politics thing that we're sitting in at the moment is part of an expression of this yearning for deeper connections, a yearning for understanding who am I in the midst of everybody else, mm what influences me and um, how can I find my way forward from that looking backwards type of posture. Yeah. So describe yourself, you know, I'm just curious about that meeting with your father the first time, age 42. You arrive there and you leave there. Do you think that that meeting and that getting a sense of understanding and things, how did that influence you going forwards? It sounds like it had a really big impact on truly embracing who you were. Yeah. I guess for, for people who have grown up in a traumatic environment, um, there, there are a few ways you can respond to that. For me, I internalized and I, I became quite um, insecure um, with the, um, the put down type of abuse that was sustained during my growing up. You know, there was a lack of confidence, there was the breaking of the spirit, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, Coming to faith in Christ sort of redeemed some of that, and um, doing a work on you know the love of God and around sixteen, it was nineteen eighty four, and foreigners, I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Right, became my prayer, you know that anthem, and I was just longing for that. So that that built up an awful lot of confidence, and um, and I found my my place in mm-hmm. that environment. Um, although it was mostly Pākehā, so I was still f- I felt like a little fish out of water mm. because my spirituality didn't quite sync with, and my questions I was asking weren't questions other people were asking. Right. So when Dad said what he said, exp- expressed his background, and then very ceremoniously accepted me and blessed me mm. with this, and said, "This is your heritage. I'm giving it to you. This is your." heritage you stand in this line i couldn't begin to describe the sense of belonging connectedness and confidence Mm. that grew from that Mm. um and in fact he um he also brought out this prophecy from his own um, spiritual walk from the latter-day saints that prophesied my 
ministry at that time globally. They said, your seed will be as the seed of Abraham, a blessing to the nations. And I was walking in this nation interaction and leadership within an evangelical type of Christian Protestant um, circles, in which I'm still in, and in fact leading a global uh, network now, uh, which is kind of a fulfillment of this foreseeing. And Mm. I don't try to make sense of it. It doesn't make any rational sense. Um, or theological sense from some perspectives of um, Protestantism. But the um, the significance to me was I'm walking the path I was always meant to walk. I am making the contribution that I was always meant to make. And I am carrying the mana of my tipuna, my ancestors, into this space as the next manifestation of what they were also called to do. Mm. Uh, so there's a tremendous sense of uh, self-worth, um, understanding where you stand in the scheme of things, but also a humility that, man, I've got this responsibility now mm. to carry that, that flame. Mm. The word that I'm thinking of, I don't know if it's the right one, but it's the word connectedness. Mm. You know, like before that point, you didn't have that feeling of connectedness back to your tipuna and, you know, understanding your history. And it sounds like this really gave you, an, you know, it set you up for what you're doing today because all of a sudden yeah. you saw all of these paths that had been connected all the time. And, you know, you grew up playing with your cousins and you never even knew it. Um, <laughs> Baptized in the, in the tribal yeah. river that was that is quite sacred mm. in in desperate need of some care Mm -hmm. but the um but yeah i would uh, the connectedness was always uh, the innate sense was there of connectedness this Mm -hmm. this rooted that connectedness right and it rooted me in a in a place and time and a people Mm. which for me was significant and uh i think there's a a sense of growth that that can come and stability that comes from being rooted. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, if your Kenyan friends or your African friends, if they said to you, there's something a little bit different here, tell me more, your story was more complete. Yeah, one of the things we learn um, in language learning uh, in the international space is uh, there's this uh, LAMP method, language acquisition made practical. And the first rule of LAMP is to learn a little, use it a lot. And so as I'm stumbling through my own reo and my own uh, pepehar and um, mihi fakatels and things like that and not being in that space regularly, I'm actually using that in my international uh, interface. Mm. And so I'll always introduce myself using my uh, bringing a mihi, which includes the pepehar, to an international space. And that's actually giving confidence to my African friends to stand up and speak twi, or, or to speak um, their language and express and introduce themselves mm. that roots them in a place and time as well. Mm. And the, di- the, di- the dimension of, um, of pride, I guess, and there's, there's a, an issue when it comes from um, Western, non-Western, or Global South, Global North relationships, is there's a superiority of the Global North and a, a sense of inferiority from the Global South. Mm. And 
this is we're really seeing a rise, particularly in this post-colonial era, of this um, rediscovery of of the um, or the loss of the inferiority, but a confidence growing, mm. and the uh, significance of the giftedness of being a Ghanaian, or a Twi, or a Nigerian, or a Zambian, or a, a, a Chinese Han, or Uyghur, or whatever, mm. and uh, and. It, one of the beauty, beautiful things for Christians is we look at the end of the story in the book of Revelation where a great tribe of people, a great mass of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, they were, you know, we're identifiable by our rootedness. We're identifiable by, as people at that grand ending, however that works out. Um, there's a significance, no longer the homo- homogenization in the great melting pot. And we're wrestling with this here in Aotearoa now. As as Maori are coming, speaking with confidence in the political and social spheres, in the business spheres, and it's incredibly um, disruptive and uncomfortable for those who've held areas of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's a necessary way forward for societies to grow with the best of all cultures coming through, mm-hmm. and um, and helping us to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing story that you're sharing, and it actually echoes two other stories I can think of on the podcast that I've had relatively recently on. The first was Vaughn Winiata, mm-hmm. and he's similar to you in that he kind of discovered his roots a bit later in life. And then another person is Ellie Archer, and she's based here in Canterbury, but she described a similar kind of journey to understanding where she fit in the world. What would be, I guess, there's going to be people listening who maybe know about some bit of their ancestry but have never really explored it what would be your encouragement to somebody like that like how it sounds like it's had a huge impact on you yeah it's um it has to be authentic there has to be a drive one of the things that there's no accident that um, ancestry.com has exploded you know people are interested in their family trees and and you always loved the stories that you can find of people who were successful, not so much the rogues and the, <laughs> the pirates, etc. Uh, but as much as you can find out from where you're from, and it's difficult for settlers. This, mm. this, the Pākehā, the settlers of Aotearoa, New Zealand, have to go back to their Scottish roots, Welsh roots, or Irish. And I'm finding a lot more people finding meaning in Celtic Christianity, for example, as a spiritual source if they're from Scotland or Ireland particularly, or Wales. Um, and uh, English sit there and, and um, they could probably map their own family trees as well mm. um, if they can access it. But we can't dwell there. We can use it. But ultimately, you have to move on from it. You have mm. to say, okay, well, what does this mean for me? That's mm. very nice. And you can have certain pride in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just realize that you are um, not wholly an, an original. You're a copy of some of a blendedness, mm. and in, in that sense, we're all hybrids. We're hybrids, and we're we're bringing. Um, and this is what Fokker Papa is. It's two unique entities blending together to create a unique third. And so it's a it's almost a, it is a scientific method in many respects that can be applied to different parts of life. Mm. 
Um, so even us talking here, two people in this conversation create co-create something unique, mm. and people will receive it in a different way. So um, appreciate where you've come from. Give thanks for that. Use as much as that of that as you can in making this world a better place for your environment. Uh, yeah, you know, um, ecosystem as well as social system, and um, because there's deep. Uh, significance and meaning in that and mm-hmm. I think we're all created to do that it's just some of our backgrounds have hindered the ability for us to access that mm. and bring it forth in a healthy healthy way mm. um, and you know we can anesthetize ourselves from the pain of the um, the nurture aspect mm. um, but there can be significance in the nature yeah no, that's really helpful. And you mentioned several locations, uh, you know, thinking about where your people had come from and, and different things. And you mentioned Rapaki, mm. which is not far from us right now. No, <laughs> is that a place that, like, have you intentionally gone back to that sort of a place and, and tried to meet people there as well? Or or not yet? Or no, yeah, I, where are you that, at on the journey? Not yet. That's <laughs> a, you know, I've probably got cousins walking down the street of Christchurch that yeah. I know not of that we're, we go back. But it, yeah, it's a few generations back. Sure. And the, and, um, the, the intermarriage landed in the Wairarapa. Because mm-hmm. um, so I was going to say one of my friends is Nuk Karako from um, Rapaki. Okay. So I went over to visit him yeah. and um, got to see the marae and the beach is there and they've got this little section that's got hot water uh-huh. coming up. Not many people know this, but there's a hot water beach wow. right in Littleton Harbor. It's a beautiful place. So it'd be yeah. fascinating to go back, I think, yeah. knowing that there's some connection point, even yeah, if it, it is. It wouldn't take long. We, we would sit down with our own whakapapa and we'll go, well, Emma Tafiri, yep, she, she came from there. I've got um, uh, my a dad got Komatua shares from a block of land. We we have claim to here and mm. then I'm part of the register now for that and so there's very strong connection just uh, it wouldn't take long yeah. it's just one of those things that um, being global facing in my activity mm-hmm. um, taking this stuff and I'm sharing it globally but I'm not going deep into it here locally mm. which is uh, incredibly frustrating but I keep thinking well phases of life my uh, bucket list is to then return home and dig deep and end my life with this with um, this mutual reciprocal um, engagement with my own people and whanau Mm. that's awesome for me I think sometimes we leave it too late to do that in life like I've met a lot of genealogists who are in their 70s or 80s and they're kind of documenting their history for me I, I did a history degree at Canterbury University so I've always loved history and so in my late 20s i'm not that old but in my late 20s i started in this a couple yeah like maybe 15 years ago now um almost 20 years actually i got really interested in where do i come from Mm -hmm. and so i started using those genealogy websites and working out who my grandparents were and then i started writing books about my grandparents so that's been a really special thing to do because i was young enough to interview my grandparents about their memories of their grandparents, which wouldn't have been possible if I'd waited until I was 70, you know? So it's this amazing thing. I've got a video of me talking with my grandmother. She died now more than a decade ago, but she's telling me the stories of her childhood and her memories of her grandparents, 
which then takes us way back to the 18, you know, yeah. 70s pretty much. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Anyway, as an encouragement to listeners, you know, this is an f- amazing area. Even if you're young, get into it. Cause, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as you grow and, and opportunity affords, you can go and visit those places, like mm. you just said. Yeah. Um, prior to COVID, in, in uh, February 2020, I was in Germany. And I knew that um, my great-grandfather, Rora, had come from Prussia, which is now, their village is now part of Poland, mm-hmm. via Hamburg to Ekaterhuna. <laughs> and uh, I was in Hamburg at the port where they departed from. So knowing that history, mm. thanks to my dad's um, record-keeping, I, I had the entry, I've got a fo- um, photograph of the entry in the logbook um, of the ship, and the ship's name and their name, etc. That's cool. And just to be standing in that place, being able to project, wow, my great-great-grandfather was stood here, embarked on a ship down this river in Hamburg and then went all the way to New Zealand mm. as a refugee, effectively, mm-hmm. out of that situation, the Prussian Wars, I think. Uh, and then my dad said he went back to um, Habsburg Palace and various other things. He said, oh, I felt like I belonged there. It was a very mysterious sense. <laughs> and, of course, he's projecting from his own uh, grandfather's uh, origins. Mm-hmm. And um, so dad had this deeply spiritual sense of, of belonging in Germany mm. and, and there. So. Mm. But anyway, that's, um, they're the sort of things you can benefit from if, if you've got those mm. relationships with, with place. Mm. Can I take the conversation slightly different angle? But we've, we've used the word spirituality a bit mm. on this interview. And I'm just curious to know, you know, in your role today, because you've got quite a global perspective looking out yeah. at the world. Um, what, what are you seeing or what does that word mean spirituality in the sense of where we are in the moment in time because i'm seeing a lot more interest in this Mm. Um, people are actually quite curious to understand another dimension of life beyond the western conception of i'm going to buy a better car and get a better house and you know ultimately my bank account is my measure of success you know i think we're we're kind of getting hopefully (laughs) beyond that but have you got any thoughts about that yeah well yeah. <laughs> how long have we got the um materialism's getting very thin it's becoming dissatisfying um we're moving into a digital space where we look we're starting to form different types of meaning mm-hmm. um and that's in some ways deferring the um finding it it's creating a, a new sort of uh spiritual realm in cyberspace that's becoming a proxy, and we're moving out of the physicality. Um, mm. uh, Charles Taylor, again, calls it excarnation. We're moving into a place where we're moving out of our bodies into our heads and into cyberspace. And there's all kinds of dangers with a disembodied reality. Mm. Um, we're created as human beings to be harmonious with our environment, with one another, and uh, there are some challenges ahead for us uh, theologically, uh, regardless of your particular theology. We're going to have to wrestle with what does this cyberspace mean for us spiritually. Um, so my expression, my access to spirituality is through the um, Protestant faith. Mm-hmm. So that's um, the way that 
if we, if you will, don't want to blind your listeners with science, but it's our hermeneutic community. That's the way we interpret reality. And you know, people can see evangelicalism in an American sense as being very impositional and pushy, but we can sit within this belief system quite comfortably ourselves and um, and make sense. It's sense-making of the world. And mm-hmm. so we access spirituality through the scriptures, through faith in Jesus Christ, and through the um, very real sense we have of the Holy Spirit um, connecting us to the spiritual world in ways and dimensions that um, we don't believe can happen outside of faith in Christ. So that, that's sort of the ring fence of our hermeneutic community. And um, so within that, uh, from an indigenous perspective, I could step out of that community and say, we see the whole world connected, that the mat- beneath the material or into, in, intertwined with the material is the spiritual. Uh, unfortunately, back in the 1800s in evolutionary biology, that was labelled as animism which has stunted our growth and understanding of spirituality a lot. And I, I, I try to um, deconstruct this um, specter of animism because it, it stops us relating to the world spiritually. And we need to relate to it spiritually because we live in a spiritual world that is materially tangible. And so uh, and it's a dangerous world. What people don't understand about spirituality is there are malevolent forces at work as well as benevolent and um in the ancient religions even maori the maori tikanga and the tapu noa understanding the sacred and the and the profane or the normal um there were all sorts of rules to protect a person from overstepping the bounds and offending the malevolent spirits and getting into trouble mm. um but with a expression of christianity that i follow we um we see that you know christ has neutralized that because being the creator of we acknowledge him as the creator of all spiritual spiritual things and um we're seeking a right relationship with all of these things which we can have in christ and so um the that gives me a very safe sense of engaging with with the spiritual realm i, I know my boundaries i'm I know from a biblical uh, mandate, I don't dabble in witchcraft. I don't dabble in idolatry. Um, and so some people would come back to me and say, well, if you get rid of animism, isn't relating to the natural world in, in a spiritual way idolatrous? And my answer to that is, well, it becomes idolatry if you expect that world to provide everything that you need as opposed to the creator of that world and it becomes witchcraft if you're manipulating that world or the spirits of that world to provide something in your own life and and um for good Mm. or evil if you want to do evil for other people and my great-grandfather was a master at at, uh, makatu at the curses uh and some scary stories there but the um but the safe space we have is we we can relate to the natural world and the spiritual world, but there are right ways to relate mm-hmm. to it, and so that's um, that's the awareness that I have. So I now I sit in a, a, a position with the World Evangelical Alliance where we're looking at how we uh, move forward and bring this faith into the new reality that we've got here. That's um, with the knowledge that we have 
today and mm-hmm. of today's world in today's world and into the future and reframing some of the way we've seen things in the past reframing it in a post-colonial sense reframing it within the midst of pluralism which we is simply a, a fact there's just we live in a plural society so how do we join the conversation around that in healthy ways in beneficial ways that then uh, bring blessing to the societies we're in mm. so that's a that's a privileged position i'm in to help try to guide that conversation forward and as an indigenous person and um, being able to express that now with a lot more confidence um, even issues like creation care or, or climate change issues and ecological conservation issues the the maori way of seeing it is a, a way of relationship it's not a museum way of protecting and preserving it's a way of sustaining and flourishing and nurturing and making sure that we interact appropriately um, by relating in a care posture to this, and I would say person, personality that is a river or a hill or a thicket or, or a bush or a bird. Or, you know. <laughs> uh, and when, when Westerners particularly say, well, you know, that's just a no-go area, I usually would ask, do you have a pet? And how do you relate to your pet? Isn't that not the same thing as us relating to a tree or a river or a hill, a mountain, and holding them sacred, like set apart as special? And, uh, it's not much, it's not different, really. Mm-hmm. And we need to engage that. And I think once we feel that sense of deep connectedness, we will then realize how much we're abusing things. Mm. And if we start to get this. A uh, much more acute sense of abuse, then we'll start to reorient our priorities. Yeah. But while you feel autonomous, and while everything out there physical is seen as a utility, we will never will resolve this, you know, apocalyptic issue we're facing in terms of of climate and sustainability. Mm. Um, there needs to be a very grassroots sense of ownership of taking responsibility for what we have, what we use, what we consume, what we put back. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, I love that answer because the, the question I was asking you was about spirituality, but look at where you got to in the end. It's that, it's that sense of connectedness and, and being part of this world, being grounded in the place that we are and actually caring for the earth, yeah. the rivers, the mountains, in a way that I think in the West it's more about whose name is written on the title deed, you know, they own that land, but actually that's, you know, that person will be gone in the blink of an eye. <laughs> Even ownership is an illusion. You know, mm. it's a construct. Yeah. Um, we, we use a lot. I prefer not to use ownership, but guardianship. We, we, mm. We've been entrusted with this thing, mm-hmm. and we're entrusted with its, with its welfare. Mm. And so that's the concept, Māori concept of katiakatanga. It's, mm. it's this guardianship, this... This responsibility for something, yeah, and uh, I think that's that's an important way to move forward in a very fractured and divisive world, mm-hmm. um, because the you know, the Fakatoki, you know, what's the most important thing in the world is say tangata, 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 which usually is um, interpreted it's people, it's people, it's people, and Maori now is sort of putting in well, it's also land, so whenua 
in people. But the my interpretation anyway is, is the triplet of hitangata is is relationship. It's relationship. It's relationship. It's this interwoven trinitarian view, really, of mm. of people. And um, mm. if I was, I would to um, define sin. I would, I would just simply say sin is a broken relationship. Uh, Māori Marsden, the Anglican um, theologian, uh, in the, the book The Woven Universe, articulates that beautifully. He says, you know, the universe is ripped apart because by relationships that are ripped apart with each other, with the land, um, with our spirituality. It's just this disconnect of relationship. And, mm. and he speaks of the need for us to re weave the the universe because it's rent apart it's 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 ripped and um and particularly he says when we sing together uh waiata when we karakia together and and come together to chant to pray there's this interweaving that happens in a spiritual sense mm. and the world desperately needs to be interwoven mm. um, you just look anywhere and you can see that relationships ripped apart so the most important thing in the world for me would be relationship in harmonizing that. Mm. And I think every indigenous person would be able to say amen to that mm. because they see the same yeah. dissonance. Yeah, I like that a lot. And um, an example of that to me is actually probably your distant cousin, um, Nuk Kurako over at Rapaki, oh. because he's got an initiative which I'm helping out with, looking at social housing, mm -hmm. and in particular, Papakainga housing. So when they come and they look to build a house, a Western conception might be, well, let's dig out the land here, let's, let's just push the land aside. And his conception is, this is Papatuanuku, you know, this is there's a there's a relationship with the mm. earth. Mm. We're not going to carve into the land and cut it up. We're just going to be on the top of it, and we're going to build. But it's not going to be in a way that damages the yeah. land in a way that's unnecessary. Yeah. And which that I think it's quite a beautiful. Changes your architecture. Yeah, yeah. And it's a beautiful thing, and yeah, when you that's how values influence outcomes in mm. this in this way. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We've gone in lots of different directions. I didn't know exactly what we would talk about, but it's been great. Um, one thing that you'd mentioned when we were emailing, and um, we don't have to do this, but you mentioned that Wyata and songs were important to you. And also, I just feel like I've gotten a sense that blessing is important. Is there a, a, a Wyata or a song or, or a blessing that you could leave with us that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, sure. I um, I'm not too sure how uh, ticker this is, how right this is, but I've reinterpreted um, one of my distant fananga, um, Kenan We Huata. He wrote a song for his family by a lakeside, and um, it talks speaks of alignment, coming into alignment, lining up together, and um, learning the ways of of peace and, and love. Mm. And I first learned it at Tyrangi School in, in Cannons Creek as a kid. And many of us learnt it as a kid. Um, and uh, the New Zealand it became the theme song of the <laughs> New Zealand All Blacks in the way that we learnt it as a kid. Tu te mai, line up together. 
And um, as I was sitting with this one day, um, contemplating the depth of significance of this call to come together in love, in aroha, in maramatanga, um, I thought, man, this, there's almost a yearning in this, a longing, a lament, a motetia uh, to this song that's that's pleading with people, come back into alignment. And so I reworked the song uh, in my as a unique way as a lament. And if I may, and if Māori listeners uh, forgive me for, for doing this, but this is mm. how it goes. That'd be great. Tu tera manga iwi Tato tato Tu tera manga iwi Tato tato maramatanga Mete aroha enga iwi Kia taptahi, kia kotahira, kia taptahi, kia kotahira, tato tato e, tato e, tato tato e, yoi. Thank you so much. That was great. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful way to finish up our conversation. I feel like we've gone really deep in a lot of different areas. So I just want to say thank you, Jay, for your time and willingness to share with us. And I've really enjoyed hearing about your background, your history, and that sense of relationship that, that has come through. So thank you very much. Thank you, well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay. As you could tell, we went in many different directions, and I really appreciated his honesty in sharing some of his story and learning about the process of him coming to discover more about his identity and his whakapapa. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog as well, because there's more than 260 of those. Until next time!